philosophers of physics do? Many physicists today seem neither to know nor care, but that's not always been the case. For centuries, until roughly the mid-1800s, researchers now described as physicists were known as natural philosophers. The term natural philosophy meant the rational study of God's creation, though few physicists today would think of their subject in those terms. A few years ago, at a meeting in Munich, I heard the top-draw theoretical physicist David Gross comment publicly that he and his colleagues might benefit from the help of philosophers to help them clarify the status of the string framework and multiverse theory. These ideas appear to be hard to test empirically, and partly for that reason, their value is controversial, at least in some quarters. I suggest that philosophy is starting to make a comeback in the realm of the physical sciences. My name is Graham Farmelow, and I'm the author of the new book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers, about the relationship between cutting-edge pure mathematics and the quest to find the most fundamental laws of nature. The book often touches on philosophical questions, so I thought it would be appropriate to interview a leading philosopher of physics. So I headed north to Edinburgh to talk with Michaela Massimi, a philosopher who keeps a keen eye on modern physics and cosmology. I began by asking Massimi what drew her to specialise in the philosophy of physics rather than in physics itself. So I still remember for my laurea, which mm. is the Italian BA in philosophy, yeah. I had to produce an independent piece of research. Yeah. And I came across, by chance really, the debate in uh, 1935 between Bohr and Einstein on the completeness of quantum uh, mechanics. Mechanics, yeah. And I remember going to the physics library in Rome, which is a completely different part of the campus from philosophy where I was, yeah. going down the basement in a very, very dusty archive where mm. no one obviously was going, mm. <laughs> and digging the original physical review article by Bohr and Einstein. And the first thing that struck me is the criterion of physics reality that you find right at the beginning of the EPR Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen paper in 1935. Right, okay. So we're talking here about this famous Einstein paper that That's he wrote right. in Princeton, right? And he's trying to find a way of demonstrating that quantum, that quantum mechanics is incomplete. is incomplete. So he published this paper uh, with two other authors, Boris yeah. Podolsky and Nathan Rosen. Yeah. And the title is, Can Quantum Mechanical Description of Physical Reality Be Considered Incomplete? Yes. I think. Yeah. Maybe the wrong title. That's all right. Want That's to Close enough. And it is an extraordinary paper. It's a very short paper, mm -hmm. just two, three pages, mm -hmm. and it starts with a criterion of physical reality. Mm. Now, have you ever seen a physicist starting a physics paper with a criterion of physical reality? Yeah. That, to me, is a profound philosophical question. Yeah. What is physical reality? Yeah. And is physical reality subject to a criterion? Do we have a criterion for defining whether something is real or not? Mm -hmm. Starting from that criterion, the authors introduce the definition of what they mean by a theory being complete. Yeah. And then they move on I with see. their arguments yeah, yeah. to I demonstrate yeah. that, in their view, quantum mechanics is incomplete. Yeah. And that's followed in the same volume, I think, if not the volume after that by a very famous reply by Niels Bohr where Bohr is responding to the yeah. Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen mm -hmm. paper and he points out to a fundamental ambiguity in their criterion of physical reality. Mm -hmm. And I thought this was one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. So <laughs> you have two leading physicists mm -hmm. 
that are disagreeing about their intuitions yeah. on what counts as physical yeah, reality. Yeah, 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 yeah. And all the rest follows from that. Yeah, all the yeah. rest is history. But yeah. you think this is a philosophical question. Yeah. And it's a philosophical question that I haven't really encountered that often in other debates I've seen mm. in physics. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to work on that because I thought this is an area where philosophers maybe can explore more on what it means to be real, what is physical reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the relation between theory and and reality. Mm. This seems to be the difference between thinkers like Massimi and most physicists. She prefers to contemplate the basic questions that arise from thinking about the natural world, whereas most physicists focus on doing experiments or trying to develop or apply theories. Does Massimi agree? I think it is a fair statement, and it's a statement that reflects the deep changes that mm. have happened in physics, right. really from the 1950 onwards. At the time of Bohr and Einstein, it was still possible for someone to come up with a thought experiment yeah. to make a point, to prove something, mm-hmm. right? That, that's what yeah, Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen is all about, isn't it? The art of experiment, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, they were not yeah. running a collider to, to make their point about quantum mechanics being uh, incomplete. So, in a way, the boundaries between physics and philosophy were a lot more fluid and they are now and I think also people at the time were trained in philosophy it is a fact that Einstein read Mach and Bohr read Kierkegaard and so there's a very influential philosophical tradition that those people were familiar with and Mm. trained in an author like Bohr I found extraordinary because you can really touch there the the philosophical knowledge of the physicist Mm. is someone who's approaching his interpretation of quantum mechanics with philosophical eyes with philosophical spectacles Um, and it has always made so much sense to me I always find it funny when people say oh Bohr is so obscure and no one can understand Bohr and it's such Mm -hmm. a difficult and opaque author uh, which is true But it makes so much sense when you realize he's making a philosophical point very often. He's mm-hmm. replying to his critics. Mm-hmm. Bohr is engaging in epistemological questions about what there is in knowledge of reality and how we use concepts right. and the limits of our classical concepts. Right. So he's not doing uh, calculations, he's not doing uh, some sort of uh, stringent formalism, mm-hmm. uh, but he's really engaging uh, with what is at the art of physical research, mm-hmm. which is the quest for knowledge and for scientific knowledge. Almost a decade ago, Stephen Hawking declared that philosophy is dead. Even physicists who don't go that far often say they don't see what they can learn from philosophers. What does Massimi make of all this? I can understand why there is so much reluctance to engage with philosophy mm-hmm. in a way. It's not just that physics has profoundly changed as a field. I think philosophy has very much moved away from uh, what it used to be maybe at the time of Bohr and Einstein and, and mm-hmm. you know, the fathers of quantum mechanics. So the level of specialization that we see in physics right. is reflected also in philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think it is a fair point to say that there are mainstream philosophy today that don't necessarily engage with sciences. But that's not to say that philosophy Philosophy is useless right. to science. I think this is just a byproduct of how the two fields have grown increasingly specialized over the past 50 years or so mm-hmm. to kind of lose contact with one another. Mm-hmm. And it is a fair point, you know, philosophers don't run experiments, so we don't have anything practical to contribute to science as such. 
But I think the crucial importance of philosophy for physics is that we continue the work that physicists don't have the time or necessarily the expertise to do when it comes to key questions about the nature of evidence, the nature of scientific progress, and the nature of scientific knowledge. Those are philosophical questions, right? And anyone who's involved in physics or mathematics or any disciplines, mm -hmm. right, biology or anything mm -hmm. else, I think should be interested in those questions. The right. question of what is evidence? What counts as evidence? What are the methods through which we use evidence to make inferences about what there is? Mm -hmm. Under what condition is scientific knowledge complete? If mm -hmm. you want to use the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen question. Those are philosophical questions. Those are questions to which philosophers can contribute. Mm -hmm. And I think those are questions that really matters in our society because very often some of the debates that we encounter today, like debates about should we build a new collider, should we spend all this money in fundamental research, yeah. uh, hangs on questions about progress. How do we think about progress in science? Mm -hmm. How do we assess whether we have made enough progress in a given field? And I think philosophers have something to contribute to that debate mm -hmm. in the public discourse. Can you give me an example or two of the kind of questions in physics today that interest you and maybe your colleagues? Anything specific? that catches your attention? Sure. So there are lots of topics that come to mind mm. uh, when it comes to physics and in particular the scientific methodology and epistemology mm. of science, which is the area I work on. Mm. Really three main topics come to mind. One is the role of models in scientific inquiry. The other one is the nature of exploratory research. Mm -hmm. And the third one is the debate about pluralism and realism in science. Mm -hmm. Those are three topics that I personally find very exciting. Mm -hmm. So the first one is the question about models. What is a model? We use models all the time in mm -hmm. physics, right? We're used to understand physics by building simple models, the pendulum models mm -hmm. or the models of planetary motion. Philosophers are really interested in understanding what is a model, what specific role models play at the interface between the mathematical formalism right. and evidence. Mm -hmm. And how do we devise effective uh, strategies mm -hmm. for modeling the unknown mm -hmm. when it comes to cutting edge areas in particle physics or cosmology? cosmology yeah. Models become really important because they are our tools for uh, investigating the unknown, mm -hmm. for uh, modeling uh, what might be the case. Mm -hmm. And we need to understand uh, how evidence enters into the appraisal of model, the selection of model, the choice between rival models. Mm -hmm. There's an entire branch of philosophy of science that looks, for example, at statistical methods, uh, the use of Bayesianism or frequentism in assessing evidence for models. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a, an exciting and thriving area in mm -hmm. philosophy of mm -hmm. science, where mm -hmm. really philosophy of science can look at scientific practice and, and be continuous with scientific practice in investigating uh, the role of evidence, as I was saying before, uh, in uh, model selection, model choice. And do you actually talk with real physicists, real cosmologists <laughs> in doing this, do, or do you maintain a kind of, uh, you know... Uh, we say uh, armchair philosophy. No, I wouldn't. I'm not, I wouldn't uh, you said that, not me. But anyway, do, you keep your distance, do you keep your distance from the people doing the physics, or, or do you actually get talking with them? And I love talking to my colleagues in physics, and I'm learning a lot from them. I don't shy away from asking them, yeah. can you please explain that to me? Can so you, you go show and meet me? these groups, do you? Go I do, I do, yeah. I do, I do yeah. all the time, and uh, I'm learning from them, and uh, I feel humbled anytime that I find physicists that have the time to talk to 
philosophers have. Well, they could say that philosophers have time to talk with them. Surely. <laughs> <laughs> but but given, given the widespread prejudice against well, philosophy, yeah, finding I, this day physicists that genuinely it, care about interacting but, with but philosophers. But in those conversations, do you ever get down to the nitty-gritty in the bar or something afterwards and say, you know, well, you guys just don't understand this, or and the other side might say, you guys don't understand. Does it ever get like that, or do those interdisciplinary barriers just not, not exist? Well, I'll never get to the stage of saying, oh, you guys don't understand what you're doing. <laughs> but, um, I noticed best... you didn't say you don't actually think that. But, um... <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah. but um, the whole point of the exercise is to get first-hand knowledge of what scientists are doing when it comes to models and statistical methods mm. and, and the use of evidence and data sets. Mm-hmm. So as to ask very gentle philosophical questions, which I do get to ask, because then they invite me at their conferences, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. what I do as a philosopher, ask questions about... Well, so you actually go and talk as a philosopher at physics yes, conferences? Yes, oh, yeah, right, yeah, 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 I do get invited, oh, right. and I do ask questions. Right. You know, it's not my aim or goal, and I don't have the expertise to tell anyone about topics on which right. they are much more expert than I am. Mm-hmm. But it's the job of the philosopher to ask questions about how do you use uh, your uh, priors, for example, if you're doing Bayesian analysis. You use what, sorry? Do you know the Bayesian priors? It's a statistical method, the Bayesianism, right. that says if you want to assess what is the probability of a hypothesis given the evidence, right. then you have to use Bayes' theorem. Thomas Bayes yeah. was a clergyman and statistician, yeah, so yeah, he yeah. came up with this yeah. theorem yeah. that tells you that the probability of the hypothesis given the evidence is equal to the probability mm, of the evidence mm, given mm, the hypothesis mm, mm. Uh, multiplied by the priors mm. which is the prior degree of belief mm. that we have for the hypothesis divided mm. by the probability of the evidence the very famous theorem yeah. best theorem right and so just to give an example of a possible question that philosophers typically ask is how do cosmologists choose their priors when it comes to model selection right mm. if we have to assess rival models vis-a-vis the evidence that mm. we have mm. we need to select the priors for the rival models mm-hmm. in a certain way. And that's a, a, an exceedingly subtle exercise that mm-hmm. cosmologists are doing there. They mm-hmm. have to set priors on some of the main cosmological parameters mm-hmm. and use the evidence, which is very difficult to harvest in cosmology, mm-hmm. to assess, okay, what is the probability of mm-hmm. the parameters having exactly the value that we think it has, given the evidence. Right. So those are domains where philosophers can ask questions about methodology and the role of evidence and model selection and, and how do, do we go about using data sets for making choices about, okay, this is the right model, we have more confidence in this model rather than that model Mm -hmm. to the best of our knowledge we believe that there is dark matter and dark energy in the universe rather than not Mm -hmm. Uh, at the heart of the enterprise there are questions about the nature of data sets the nature of uh, Bayesian priors the entry model selections and this is just one example among many many others where philosophers can contribute to the discussion Mm -hmm. and one example of where I have been working more recently for my project Broadly speaking, I think it's fair to suggest that most physicists have a pretty clear goal, to understand more and more about the natural world in terms of fewer and fewer principles and laws. Do philosophers of physics have a goal, and how is the quality of their work assessed? Well, that's a, an excellent question, a difficult one as well. How do assess progress in philosophy? Mm. <laughs> um, I guess there are two main ways in which you can assess progress. Being able to 
think clearly and rigorously about a given topic mm-hmm. is a measure of success in philosophy. Mm-hmm. We value clarity because we think that a lot of the philosophical exercise is about clarifying notions, dispelling ambiguity, mm. teasing out 30 different nuances that can be all clustered under a topic and mm-hmm. so forth. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a way of making progress. Mm-hmm. You may think, okay, this is not a very impressive notion of progress mm-hmm. <laughs> by other lights. Mm-hmm. But another way of making progress is by advancing a debate over and above a possible philosophical stalemate that might have arised for centuries. So I'm thinking here again of Immanuel Kant, oh, right. one of the greatest philosophers that well, yeah. I personally love in terms of his contribution to theoretical philosophy. One of his greatest contributions was precisely to go beyond uh, what at the time was some sort of uh, impasse between uh, two grand philosophical traditions, the empiricist tradition and the, if you like, the rationalist yeah. tradition. So one of the contributions of Immanuel Kant, theoretical philosophy at least, uh, was to show how there is more to be said about the nature of human knowledge than uh, what the two previous school uh, had mm. thought before. Mm-hmm. But in all fairness, I think professional philosophers of sciences, they don't aim quite as high as no. You know, coming up with a new yeah, system yeah. of uh, scientific knowledge. So uh, progress is assessed by the clarity of thought and the ability to make progress mm-hmm. on um, sometimes very, very, very old questions. Mm-hmm. So we don't ask a new question. We don't discover new entity. We don't build bridges yes. or build satellites. We don't have anything as practical as that. But yeah. being able to reach clarity on important perennial questions on which sometimes there's a lot of confusion and a lot of obscurity that's progress enough Mm. in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Many physicists assume that philosophers of physics do useful work only insofar as they help advance physics. But the philosophers seem to be much less focused on coming to the aid of physicists than on clarifying some of the basic ideas and concepts relating to physics. I, I agree. Uh, again, philosophy of physics is a big family. There are some colleagues that are working on the foundations of physics, mm. uh, different branches of physics, quantum mm. theory or statistical mechanics or uh, quantum mm. mechanics. Uh, anyway, some of the more uh, technical, formal work in that area mm. is really continuous with physics. Mm. Uh, but even uh, people like myself that don't necessarily work on the foundations of mm. quantum field theory or statistical mechanics mm-hmm. and are more interested in the epistemological questions can help by um, trying to be as clear as we can in understanding some of those concepts and notions. Finally, I asked Masimi how she would like to see her subject develop in the coming decades. Where would she like it to be in, say, 2070? I would love to see philosophers more engaged with scientists and I would love to see us more embraced by the scientists. Mm. I think it would be a wonderful achievement for our field if one day we were able to say philosophers of science are an integral part of the ongoing conversation about the future of physics or biology or medicine or whatever it is Mm. that we're working on. Mm -hmm. I guess, yes, my, my main desire would be to see philosophy of science to be an integral part of what is it like to do science these days. Mm-hmm. and can go back to the old uh, way of thinking of philosophy as an integral part of the scientific inquiry right. where anyone that is trained as a physicist uh, get the chance to study 
philosophy and scientific method mm-hmm. and uh, get a well-rounded view on uh, a series of philosophical issues that mm-hmm. matters for science mm-hmm. and for a career in science, I think. I think that's an inspiring vision, especially here in Edinburgh. We're sitting here in your office because here was the home for many years of one of the great natural philosophers, James Clark Maxwell. And I've often read that he was just as much at home talking to philosophy students at uh, Trinity College at the end of his career that he was supervising experiments or doing his calculations in the Cavendish laboratory. But he always called himself a natural philosopher. So we were perhaps hoping for a, uh, a move back to Maxwellian <laughs> times where he was unashamedly interested in philosophy and indeed in metaphysics as well, of course. That's right. But, uh, but that's right, metaphysics is the other big area I've mentioned so far. I've spoken too much about progress and evidence and scientific knowledge, mm. but Metaphysics is the other big area where philosophy can and obviously has historically made contribution Mm -hmm. to physics. Mm -hmm. So yes, my wish is to restore natural philosophy as an integral part of our curriculum. And I think there are some positive, encouraging signs in that direction, because in the past few years, we find physicists that choose the expression natural philosophy as the title for their chairs. So we have the chairs of natural philosophy, in fact one here in Edinburgh in really? 2016 indeed. Yeah. So uh, Professor Wilson Poon is the new chair of natural philosophy, is a chair that has a long history, I think Tate had it in the past and yeah. lots of Maxwell's other... Maxwell's friend Tate. Yeah, yeah, that's right exactly. So uh, that chair I think was vacant for a period so now a new chair of natural philosophy has been appointed mm-hmm. in Edinburgh. We have a chair of natural philosophy in New York with Tom McLeish. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is that the physicists who choose the title natural philosophy and are not ashamed of using that title tend to work on soft mother physics Mm. rather than cosmology or particle physics Mm. so Mm. those are really areas of physics where I think physics, chemistry and biology the boundaries between those three fields become very very fluid Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting that there is this revival of the title of uh, Chair of Natural Philosophy in what I think is actually another thriving field for Mm -hmm. for physics soft Mm -hmm. mother physics, Mm -hmm. the interface really with biology Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that there is a scope for it. I think it's inspiring (laughs) I I hope that in another what 20 or 30 years when your career is drawing to a close you'll be working among physicists in the physics (laughs) department maybe but uh, anyway so kind of you to spend time with us thank Thank you you so much much. thank you so much for your time Uh, thank you all right thank you it was a real pleasure to talk with Michaela she's an eloquent ambassador for her subject full of interesting perspectives on physics and how it's studied I have a hunch that many of her hopes for her subject may be realized in the coming decades With experiments and observations gradually becoming very, very expensive and the possibility that theorists will spend decades without leads from experiments, I expect there will be a lot of pressure on physicists to clarify what they are trying to achieve and why. Philosophers may well return to the fore in physics.